0: Hello, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our fifth episode of China Uncovered, part of our broader China transparency project. The project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party by highlighting the work of our friends. For today's episode, we're going to be talking about investment again, both Chinese investment in the US as well as American investment in China. And if you haven't already taken a listen, be sure to check out our episode number two, where we chatted with Derek Scissors from American Enterprise Institute about his China investment tracker. The reason we're returning to the topic of Chinese investments today is not only because it's a hot topic given the state of U.S.-China relations, but also because with Derek, we spoke principally about China's investments in the U.S. And today we're going to talk about the investments the two countries make in each other. So we'll also talk about some of the recent news, including one of China's largest financial companies and its failed initial public offering. And to help me here today, I'm welcoming back my colleague and co-host, Riley Walters, Senior Policy Analyst and Economist in our Asian Studies Center. So welcome back, Riley.
1: Thanks for having me. It's good to be back, Olivia.
0: Well, Riley, as I was just telling our listeners a few episodes ago, we talked about the CCP's lack of transparency in the investment space. So, um, can you maybe recap for our listeners the importance of investment and detail some of the things that governments are doing to protect people and markets from making bad investments?
1: Sure. Um, so, as you mentioned uh, in our our last podcast on Chinese investment, you know, we talked uh, about all the different kinds of investment. That exist, uh, you know. For example, there's the kind of investment that goes into, let's say, the building of a new manufacturing plant, uh, all the way to the kind of passive investment in a company, like you would see uh, when you buy a company's stock. And the fact that investment can be measured so many different ways means that there's actually a lot of good data out there <laughs> on the different kinds of investment. Uh, and generally speaking, uh, you know, investment is a good thing. Uh, Investment builds confidence in the investment destination, it supports economic activity like research and development, and it helps create jobs. Um, Of course, governments, like within the United States, uh, do have concerns about certain foreign investments, Uh, for example, whether uh, a Chinese company is planning to buy a U.S. semiconductor manufacturing company. And... These concerns are generally focused on investments in industries that impact our national security, but the authorities that look at these investments you know, also try and find a balance between uh, restricting the investment for the sake of our national security and allowing benign investments through for the sake of our economic benefit.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think you set the stage for our conversation really well, Riley. So speaking of different ways investments can be measured, today's guest comes to us today from the Rhodium Group. You may have actually seen their data on Chinese investment, either in the news or even at congressional hearings. In particular, their online US-China Investment Hub gives a really great breakdown of not just cross-border US-China investment flows, but it even has a breakdown by state and province level data as well. And to talk to us about this data, we have Adam Lysenko, Associate Director at Rhodium Group. Adam, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Hi, Olivia. Hi, Riley. Uh, Happy to speak with you today, too.
0: Great. Well, Adam, we're going to start with the mechanics first. Um, One of Rhodium Group's most seminal publications is your U.S.-China investment hub. What data are you collecting? How do you collect and measure it? And how is the U.S.-China investment hub different from other investment trackers?
2: Yeah, thanks, Olivia. The uh, U.S.-China Investment Hub is a body of research that is built on proprietary transactions level data covering foreign direct investment. That is uh, the types of investments that uh, include creation of brand new factories and offices uh, and acquisitions of existing uh, of major controlling stakes in existing uh, firms and also venture capital flows between the United States and China. And this project began uh, with a recognition that official data really do not offer enough by way of granularity and timeliness to be particularly useful for policymaking and uh, relevant economic analysis. Uh, There are a bunch of shortcomings when you look at available data sources, uh, especially from government sources, um, issues like distorted numbers due to the fact that companies will often invest through third party jurisdictions and tax havens instead of directly in other countries. Um, how investments are tabulated, whether or not uh, these intercompany transfers, uh, moving money into and out of subsidiaries is is, is netted against investment. It's all very academic and technical and also quite delayed. You can't look at official data on foreign direct investment or or venture capital, for that matter, uh, in a way that's useful uh, without a, a lag of at least two or three years. So based on that, uh, that issue, we've been curating and maintaining data sets like the one you described for more than a decade now, covering not just direct investment and venture capital, but other types of economic activities and geographies uh, involving China uh, and the world. Uh, And so where do these data come from? We scan dozens of transaction sources in the United States and China, everything from press releases, business registrations, regulatory filings, company websites, so on and so forth, to try and keep track of the latest granular trends in U.S.-China investment. And instead of gathering these data at the top, looking at financial flows going across borders, we take this bottom-up approach where we... uh, uh, Put all of these transactions records together, and then estimate on on uh, at the high level what these broad trends in investment actually look like. So this approach is completely different methodologically to the official data sources. So our our numbers don't always align directly, but uh, the granularity and timeliness and ability to drill down and look at individual transactions and investors uh, reveal insights that might be indiscernible with other data sources. And um, as as far as we know, uh, given as much attention to detail and effort uh, that we do to track these flows, we have uh, the most granular polished data sets on US-China investment transactions in these spaces Uh, that are available anywhere.
0: Mm, That's really impressive, Adam. And it it really sounds like Rhodium Group covers a broad swath of important data uh, that can help inform our listeners and policymakers. Um, Can you go into a little bit of detail about what some of the key findings are in your most recent update?
2: Yeah, well, I don't think listeners will be surprised to hear, uh, given the, the increasing tensions between the United States and China and um, all the other developments from the past few years, that two-way investment through FDI and through venture capital between the United States and China uh, is, has really taken a hit in the last few years. Um, our headline finding from our most recent piece of research um, pegged the total at about $10 billion during the first half of 2020, Uh, which is actually the lowest level since the second half of 2011. Uh, And this drop would have been even larger if it weren't for one or two especially large individual deals that happened to close during the quarter, uh, including a 10 cents acquisition of a 10% stake in Universal Music for just north of $3 billion. That one deal accounted for like 30 to 40% of the total. So flows in both directions have come down from previous peaks, um, which depending on the type of investment and and the country happened between 2016 and 2018 and really developments in both countries are to blame. Uh, On the U.S. side, heightened investment screening and export control reforms tied with uh, tariffs and other escalatory measures that have damaged investor sentiment from China have, have certainly acted as a headwind for Chinese investment in the U.S. And then on the Chinese side, Post 2016, stepping up capital controls on outbound investment, and then also continuing to sort of be slow to relax many legacy inbound investment controls have have prevented uh, more money uh, from coming in from places like the United States. So it's it's complicated, but the net effect has certainly been a, a drastic and uh, dramatic fall in two-way capital flows in the last three or four years.
1: The the net effect is is definitely interesting, but one of the things I love about uh, the the hub you guys have is it is it also breaks it down by state and provincial level i know that gets a little bit complicated depending i guess uh you know on where a lot of these companies might be registered but you know if i'm looking at it from uh the hub online you know i, I look at my home state of virginia and uh, I was, we see nearly 19 billion in cross-border investment with china which you know isn't insignificant uh meanwhile if i just sort of pick a random province, um, let's say uh, Sichuan in, in Western China, they've seen roughly 13 billion in cross-border investment. Um, I know it's kind of hard to describe geography over a podcast, but <laughs> uh, you know, I was wondering if you can maybe try and break down, uh, do you see any trends at the state and provincial level as well? Yeah, absolutely.
2: Uh, It shouldn't be surprising that the centers of economic activity in both countries tend to attract the most investment uh, and also be the sources of most outbound investment. So, you know, for example, looking in the United States, New York and California are by far the top states uh, for FDI, both to and from China, while uh, California is by far the top state for Chinese venture investment in the U.S., which, you know, again, is not surprising given how much venture capital activity happens in and around Silicon Valley. On the chinese side shanghai beijing and several east coast provinces like jiangsu and zhejiang are top recipients and sources of fdi to and from the united states and that aligns very closely with the regions of china that are the most economically developed and where the most um, sort of uh startup dynamism exists but that being said u.s china investment has reached essentially every u.s state and chinese province Uh, At this point, after 20 years of a ton of growth, uh, in spite of, you know, two or three years of of falling flows recently, and we're at the point now where hundreds of thousands of workers in each country owe their livelihood to foreign investment from the other nation. Um, You know, I'd be surprised if any of us listening uh, to this podcast uh, haven't used or consumed something in the last 24 hours that has been produced by a foreign investor from China, be it a a Lenovo laptop, uh, pork from Smithfield, or even just watched a video on TikTok. Um, It's really amazing how how much of this bilateral investment is is now touching uh, the lives of pretty much everyone.
0: That's really remarkable, Adam. I'm glad that you highlighted that um, a lot of these investments touch on ordinary people's daily lives. Your data also includes a feature that tracks venture capital funding. Can you briefly talk about what venture capital is, why it's important, and why tracking this data is equally important?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So high level venture capital refers to early stage equity investment in nascent enterprises with high growth potential. Uh, And it plays a critical role in the development of new companies and technologies in the United States, offering startups access to financing from investors willing to make high risk, uh, but also potentially high high reward bets on unproven business models. Uh, Many of the largest and most innovative public companies in the United States today, household names like Amazon, Apple, and Google, had their beginnings as venture-backed startups. And companies like these are are super important, um, even even after they go public, in continuing to push innovation forward in the United States. Estimates suggest that venture-backed public companies in the U.S., uh, like those I just mentioned, Uh, really punch above their weight in terms of research and development spending, accounting for something like 40% of all R&D expenditures among public firms in the US, despite accounting for only 10% of total revenues. So these companies are very important uh, constituents of of the backbone of of innovation in the United States. Uh, So why did the US, uh, why did US policymakers start to get heartburn uh, when they saw that Chinese venture investors uh, were becoming more and more active in the United States? Well, back in 2013, 2014, and 2015, um, investment from China in the in the venture capital realm really started to take off, and this coincided with a period where there was an an increasing awareness and appreciation of how new technologies being developed by startups in the United States had many uh, what we call dual use applications. Um, You know, if you go back 20 or 30 years, a venture backed startup might be developing something like a really nifty, um, you know. Landline telephone, uh, which is you know pretty cool, and obviously uh, if if used in certain settings, like if deployed uh, in the military, might uh, you know create some communication capabilities that were lacking previously, we're at a point now where the types of technologies being developed are like really broadly potentially applicable in, in the strategic realm. Technologies like artificial intelligence, uh, you know, the same algorithms that are helping you figure out how to navigate the world on Google Maps are like also the same tools that could be helping strategic applicants trying to navigate a battlefield or something like that. And so there's this concern that by not screening for, by not having a way to make sure that we were aware of where Chinese venture investment dollars were going in the United States, that um, a potential geopolitical adversary could be gaining access to technologies uh, that would uh, ultimately be to the U.S. detriment, to have uh, have those technologies go to China. We had a a bunch of developments. uh, A a pretty widely uh, read report was put out by uh, DIUX, a, a venture investment arm of the Defense Department, Uh, And in 2018, we got FIRMA, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, which expanded the authority of um, uh, the investment screening regime in the United States, the Committee of Foreign Investment in the United States, CIPIUS, to look at venture capital investments, especially those from China.
0: Wow. Let's um, let's keep delving into this a little bit. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in Chinese venture capital funding? And you did touch a bit on AI, but why do you think Chinese um, venture capital investors are so interested in life sciences, but US investors are more interested in, in things like AI?
2: Yeah, well, th- those are exactly the types of questions that we've been hoping our data can be used to answer. We're trying to bring objective analysis to the debate around Chinese venture investment to help preserve the benefits of continued uh, integration in that space, uh, both by identifying potentially problematic activities and by demonstrating how benign and beneficial much of Chinese venture investment in the U.S. is and, of course, U.S. venture investment in China. So when, when you are trying to answer questions like these, in the end, it really comes down to just a couple of key considerations. Um, first is, like, what is the investment opportunity set in each country. Uh, There are technology clusters and groups of researchers uh, in the United States and elsewhere that may have like a specialized comparative advantage in in certain emerging technology areas like AI uh, or life sciences. Uh, And then there are investment preferences. Uh, So each uh, group of investors from the United States or from China are going to be Uh, making decisions about investing abroad based on a certain set of drivers. You know, some of them will be uh, seeking purely financial returns. Some of them are going to be strategic investors like companies who want to acquire new uh, technological capabilities so that they can remain competitive as they operate internationally. And in some cases, you might even have policy or government investors who have sort of these non-market incentives. Uh, And examples from China include like uh, semiconductor investment guidance funds. Uh, these are entities that have been funded by the government to go and uh, invest both within and outside of China to try and help China develop expertise in emerging semiconductors technologies, um, and so. The trends in each country are driven by the mixture of investment opportunities and investor preferences. So you asked about a couple specifically looking at life sciences. uh, Life sciences is a huge, huge area for Chinese investment in the U.S. And there are a few reasons. There are simply more health and biotechnology focused Chinese venture capital investors active in the United States than there are similar U.S. venture investors active in China. There are a lot of players, uh, they include uh, names that you may or may not have heard of, uh, uh, investors like Lilly Asia Ventures, which was actually spun out from Eli Lilly in 2009 and, and uh, now operates in China. Uh, Ushi Aptech and its U.S.-based subsidiary Six Dimensions Capital, un Capital, Shanghai Chem Partners, U.S. subsidiary Shang Pharma Innovation. Uh, the list goes on and on. Um, even companies like Tencent and Baidu have been active investors in the sector, um, along with uh, more than 180 unique other Chinese venture capital investors since 2000. So, uh, simply put, there's uh, uh, an attractive investment opportunity set in in life sciences, in the venture capital ecosystem in the United States. And then there are just numerous investors from China that are interested in that piece as well.
1: I know when you're talking about venture capital, it can it can seem like a lot, I think, to to newcomers, especially into the investment field. Especially when we're talking about Chinese investment, um, it you know it really becomes complicated too, <laughs> since you know venture capital are usually in these companies that aren't really well established and 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 usually emerging technologies that people are unfamiliar with. So it's it's great to have uh, this data available, so I think people can really dive in to some of this. Um, let me ask you something a little bit different, um, more 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 recent, relevant, I guess. Um, in recent news, we we see that the Trump administration, uh, so that through an executive order recently, uh, banned certain investments into Chinese entities with military connections. I know you were talking already a little bit about dual use uh, earlier, but maybe this is something a little bit different. Um, so while that's happening at the same time, you know, the things that we hear out of Beijing, you know, more and more are you know, Chinese officials practically begging for foreign investment into China. Um, I, I know you've said based on your research that you see this, the trend of bilateral FDI flows decreasing, but you know, based on these recent events and looking at your data, what do you think uh, about the future of US-China investment flows?
2: Yeah, so I think there's a really big disparity between the policy drivers and the commercial drivers of US-China uh, bilateral investment in, in all of these realms that you've talked about. Um, you know, I've been talking about FDI and venture capital, the policies that you just referred to around banning US investment in these listed companies with um, uh, military ties is more like a portfolio investment, like like buying, buying stock mostly. Uh, there are huge commercial motives for individuals and companies in the US to be investing in China. Um, China is, you know, the world's largest growth market, and especially in like the coronavirus year of 2020, where China is going to be like the only major economy that actually grows uh, full year 2020. Um, largest consumer markets, you know, there are these innovative, innovative clusters and in technology areas like AI uh, in China that are like world class and highly competitive. Um, and all of these all of these um, uh, drivers in the absence of like uh, any sort of restrictions for the policy realm. We we view would would be leading to much more investment from the U.S. to China and from China to the U.S. than exists right now. Um, but on the other side, you've got these um, uh, these policy issues both in the United States and China that are really impacting and restricting and, and creating headwinds for more investment. Um, and uh, those have obviously taken their toll on two-way flows in the last two or three years, and will continue to uh, you know create uh, obstacles for. Uh, Commercially minded investors who are looking for opportunities in in, in each other's markets. Um, capital controls are going to continue to suppress investment outflows from China, even while reforms uh, are creating some opportunities for new inflows. You know, for example, opening up opportunities for financial services firms, for autom- automakers. Uh, those are creating opportunities in China. Um, Investment screening in the United States and elsewhere globally, frankly, uh, is a strong headwind for both Chinese direct investment and venture capital investment abroad compared to peak years from 2016 to 2018. So all of these, uh, and of course you mentioned, of course you mentioned the the bombastic rhetoric and and threats um, from the US administration to try and curtail US investment in China. the net of the net impact of all of this is is sort of uh, sort of gray. Um, you know our view is that u s china tensions and the coronavirus pandemic have definitely put pressure on flows in both directions. but the outlook for u s. investment in China is generally better than the outlook for Chinese investment in the United States, at least in the next year to two. Um, what might invalidate that is if if these these um, initial threats uh, from the u s. side, to put in place policies that severely curtail the ability of U.S. investors to invest in China, if those are actually really followed through on and expanded, um, then, you know, there could be sort of a, a downside surprise. But but we also think that the, the commercial drivers of that U.S. investment interest in China, um, they're just so strong and powerful that uh, barring like a really explicit and harsh U.S. policy intervention, uh, U.S. companies and individual, individuals are just going to keep looking for ways to gain access to, to the, the Chinese market.
1: Yeah, one of the uh, one of the things we also see with U.S. policy is, um, you know, it are the benign investments from our our friends and allies tends to get caught up in this as well. So, you know, while we have these mechanisms to review more Chinese investment, you know, we're also at the same time reviewing more investments from you know, our, our partners in, in Japan and Canada as well. So it definitely has some, you know, interesting implications. Um, you were talking about, you know, China possibly being the only country that has growth this year, uh, how they're opening up. They want to basically drive in more investment into financial services, things like that. Just because this is also sort of crazy story that's happening in the news right now, I, I do want to ask you your thoughts about, uh, the recent failed uh, initial public offering of uh, one of China's largest financial companies, Ant Group. So for those listening who don't know Ant, uh, it's, a, it's an affiliate of, of the Alibaba group. Uh, and Alibaba is basically what I call the Amazon of China. Ant recently had had an initial public offering that was supposed to be the largest value in history at, at a value of $34 billion. But what almost seemed like a last-minute decision, uh, the offering was actually canceled. Some say it was because Jack Ma, both Ant and Alibaba's founder, had said some things recently that Beijing didn't like. But you know, if you also think back a couple of years ago, there was actually uh, an instance when U.S. authorities were looking at then Ant Financial's acquisition into a, a U.S. company, a uh, MoneyGram, you know, we're talking about all these authorities that review Chinese investment. And so that was called off too, you know, back then there were, there were concerns about China's financial regulations, but there were also security concerns as well. And so Adam, I just, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on the failed uh, initial public offering and sort of what might investors take away from this.
2: Sure, Riley. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the money gram and, and financial IPOs are connected to, uh, through Ant, uh, which was party to both of those transactions. But I I don't actually think that those two deals um, are uh, directly comparable. So MoneyGram, that transaction was worth less than a billion dollars and would have given Ant Financial a modest foothold in the US market in in payments, financial remittances. Uh, From a competition perspective, it's hard to really argue that it would have had a really harmful effect uh, on the United States despite Ant's size and uh, its global ambitions. I think the major concern among U.S. policymakers at the time was Ant's access to data on U.S. citizens, and that was the same uh, the same foundational uh, uh, concern that uh, led to uh, investment screening, uh, forced divestitures in the United States of other companies in the last two or three years, like patients like me and Grindr and Stay in Touch, the, the hotel data platform, and of course, most recently TikTok. On the flip side, I think Chinese regulators are less concerned about data privacy and security around Ant Financial and more concerned about data ownership and how powerful Ant Financial and companies like it have become in China. Uh, These regulators would like the chance to pump the brakes on the continued meteoric rise of companies like Ant and make sure they can control the future of how data is generated and used. Um, and they want to make sure that these companies don't outgrow China's regulatory reach. You know, for example, in setting consumer lending rates, which is an area that regulators have uh, uh, chafed at uh, in trying to to work with uh, with Ant in China. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, these there there are sort of data concerns in both cases, but I think they're uh, a, a real mixture of of drivers. Um, you know, that being said. Uh, There are some really clear lessons, I think, uh, that investors should be paying attention to. They should consider how this move to constrain the growth of one of the world's largest technology firms could become a pattern. Uh, both in China, um, obviously, because they had financial comes from China, but also elsewhere in the world where, frankly, voices have been questioning the current power that major tech firms have everywhere in light of both, you know, market competition and also, frankly, social utility perspectives. And so it's sort of interesting that uh, it could be when we, when we look back in five, 10, 15 years that the sort of first major move against uh, a massive technology firm uh, from a regulatory side to, to try and sort of uh, bring it to heel and make sure it's, it's evolving in, in ways that... Uh, everyone feels good about uh, could have happened in China. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if that plays out. Uh, of course, also there's a chance that China's major technology firms uh, could be interested in looking abroad for growth opportunities uh, if they find that their domestic market growth paths are narrowed as a result of these types of interventions. You know, if, if this is a signal to Ant Financial and other major tech firms in China that China is not going to allow just an unfettered growth into every single nook and cranny of the data-powered Chinese economy, uh, they may have to you know look elsewhere for growth potentially um, and for companies that have been able to rely very very heavily on their home markets for continued growth opportunities uh, it could uh, it could represent a, a pretty significant shift in the environment really force them to look overseas uh, more um, more systematically uh, of course uh, whether or not those overseas markets are uh, receptive to investment from China is an open question uh, but, but the interest may be there
0: Hmm. Adam, we've already covered a lot of ground um, from your own work and from the work overall of Rhodium Group. I'm really curious to hear from you, what findings from your guys' report do you wish received more attention? And I think, you know, sort of a corollary to that is, how would you like the data and the findings from those reports to be used, um, and how do you think they can be used most effectively by policymakers?
2: Yeah, I think I can answer both of those questions um, pretty succinctly. You know, the one of the reasons we've painstakingly mapped the history of U.S.-China FDI and venture capital investment is to just show how deeply in- integrated our two economies have become. Um, and while flows have certainly slowed in recent years and, uh, you know, headlines from our recent reports will, will say that, you know, U.S.-China investment down to a you know five or ten year low. Um, Stocks, uh, investment stocks and the hundreds of billions of dollars exist on both sides, and I just don't think that US policymakers have really been systematically assessing these costs as part of a carefully balanced China uh, policy framework in, in recent years. Uh, so, you know, what do I wish would happen? You know, in this era of strategic competition, of course, there are legitimate places where these extensive U.S.-China ties need to be reevaluated. Um, and, you know, our data, in fact, highlights some of these historical cases where we've seen investments from China to the U.S. in sensitive technology areas that, frankly, make us scratch our heads a little bit. Uh, you know, but our hope is that policymakers will use our data and insight to craft policy that resembles more of a scalpel than a bludgeon. Uh, enabling careful excision of U.S.-China economic linkages that are problematic while allowing for the myriad economic, cultural, and even strategic benefits that we enjoy thanks to engaging with China to continue. I think that the United States benefits economically, socially, culturally, in, in many ways from not being shut off to integrating with and interacting with China. And It's my hope that no matter what direction uh, U.S.-China politics and geopolitical relations take in the coming you know years and decades, that we won't have to give up that beautiful thing that we enjoy.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Adam. I think uh, you've definitely achieved a primary goal of our podcast, which is just to be pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think you've just done that famously uh, in the context of analyzing Chinese investment. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, Olivia Riley, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in for our fifth episode of China Uncovered. Stay tuned. In two weeks from now, we're going to be bringing you another episode of China Uncovered. This next time, we will be talking about the Chinese Communist Party's lack of transparency in the military space. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're looking forward to seeing you next time.
1: China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.